if you've, uh, if you, <clears throat> we're all learners and we're all teachers in our own sort of way, you, you have probably noticed in your life, if you're trying to teach somebody something, or if you're in the position of a learner, there's a very delicate balance the instructor has to kind of weigh with regards to offering instruction, which is needed in order to get the student moving in the right direction. I don't just mean in an academic environment, just in a life environment. You need to offer some kind of instruction to move and create the learning direction. But you also need to create a space for the learner to kind of participate in the path of discovery. That's how real learning happens. And you'll see this. Little children, when you're trying to teach them to tie a shoe or to buckle their car seat or whatever it is, they kind of need um, a start. But if you, keep, if you keep the tempo of the language you use in the beginning, you very often will run to, I, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it, I got it. Just let me do it. You know? And that'll happen, too, if when you take a new job and you're the, the new guy and you're on the job training. You'll have that, that, uh, that supervisor who will step in to be helpful, but before you know it, you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. Because every time I sit down, he or she does the whole thing for me. Just kind of, you feel like a puppet, and their hands in you, and they just, here's how to do it. And so the, the art of teaching is that is kind of pushing it in the right direction, equipping it to go on its own path of discovery. When I was in, in, uh, in Georgia, uh, before I came here, I was in, instructing uh, young pilots uh, on their way to become fighter pilots uh, in like basic concepts of, how to fly in air combat. And this was, there was a great degree of intentionality. Hours and hours spent trying to hone the path of being the catalyst for learning, but not stifling discovery. And, and that is a very delicate balance. And it was, so it would start this way. It usually would start very, very instructive. I would be very heavy on here's what to do. So I would demonstrate, if we go flying and we were going to do some kind of engagement, I would demonstrate the engagement first, and throughout the engagement I would speak. I would talk the whole time about what I'm doing, the mechanics of what I'm doing with my hands and my feet and my head. I would say, this is what I'm doing, and then I would also tell him, this is what I'm looking at and this is what I'm thinking. And the whole time I would talk, and then he would get the airplane, and I'm sitting behind him. And then he would do the same thing, but I would talk to him, and I would be very, very discreet and clear about the things that were wrong. I, I, I did not assume that he could kind of think beyond square one. So I would say, check your airspeed. You're slow. Throttle back, more G. Or throttle up, less G in that case, right? Check your airspeed, you're slow. Push the throttle up. And so what I'm saying is, is where do you need to look? I, I direct his eyes, look at the airspeed indicator, and then I say, analyze the situation. The, the airspeed indicator is telling you you're slow, and then I tell him the fix. Release G, apply power. That's how it happened. And that's how it happens in the very beginning when there's core learning coming on. But as the sorties would continue with the student, you would begin to migrate towards something like this, check airspeed. You would just say, check airspeed. And the assumption is now that the student, if he just knows where to look, can analyze. He can look and go, I'm fast, power back, apply G to kind of bleed off the knots. That's what you could expect. And then it would go to this. It would go, you'd go just to cross-check, meaning take your head out of the, you know, stop looking at the bandit, come back in, look at the cockpit, and figure out what's wrong. Something's wrong. And then from there, if, like, if the student was doing well or if he was on track, You'd get to a place where you could simply say, you'd be flying the engagement and his circle is a lot bigger than the bandit circle because he's going fast and he's not applying genes. So you'd say, how's it going? 
And he'd say, I feel like I'm losing. And he'd say, well, what's your circle look like? And he'd say, my circle's big. And I would say, well, fix it. And so the thought would be, is you're trying to get the student to get all the way out to analyzing the entire fight from the point of reference, which is the bandit. You know, if you could teach a student to say, I can fly the whole thing based on what the bandit, in my, in my view, is, is doing, then, I, then that's kind of having arrived. And that's, that's, that's just that's an example of how learning occurs, how good learning occurs if it's done well, um, and, and, and the progression of learning. But there is this, this sense when it starts sometimes that we just want something to tell us what to do. We, we want someone to tell us what to do. And, and today we're going to be reading in Scripture of an occasion where God speaks. We're going to kind of recap where God has spoken to Isaac once, and he's going to speak to Isaac again. And we're going we're to kind of try to place in the balance this question of why doesn't God speak to us clearly? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it? Haven't we all thought that? And this, this week I was visiting with, with, with one of you, and we were visiting over this text, and he said, that's the problem in this story, is why doesn't God do this for us? I mean, there's these times when you just want to, you would much rather him say, check airspeed, you're slow, power G, rather than, so how's it going? <laughs> but doesn't it feel like more often than not, that's about the biggest push we get from the Spirit is kind of a gentle, what's the fight looking like here? And we're kind of led to kind of decipher that from the other truths we have. So this morning, this, is going to be the, this is, idea is going to be the bookends to a message. We're going to kind of start with this idea, and we're going to touch on it a few, and then we'll kind of end with this idea of, of understanding why does God seem so silent at times, and why does he speak? And in what ways does he speak? And what does our posture need to be to hear a speaking God? That's going to be part of it. And then in the middle, when he's silent, we'll just investigate the story. So with that said, we're in, I'm in Chronicles. First it was upside down, and now I'm in Chronicles. Uh, we're in Genesis 26, and we're picking up in 12. Now, if you weren't here last Sunday, or if you forgot the story, what happened? There was a famine. Isaac, who's the son of Abraham, who has received the promise from God, through which God's going to work his entire story of redemption. Isaac is involved in a famine. He has to uproot his family. He has to go uh, seek uh, greener pastures, you might imagine. It's my gut feeling that he's heading towards Egypt. On the way towards Egypt, he's stopping in Gerar, which is a town towards the borderlands of Canaan. On the way to Egypt, and the Lord says to him, don't go to Egypt, stay, in, stay here and I'll bless you. And the Lord gives him, very clearly, the Lord speaks to him, do not go to Egypt, stay here and I'll bless you. And that's clear, that's your slow power G. Right? Stay here and I'll bless you is what the Lord says. You'll be fine, you'll be safe, I'll bless you. And he gives Isaac this promise. And then, so Isaac stays, he trusts and he stays, and there's a lot of drama and, and what happens, but... We're going to talk about that. But he stays, and he is blessed. He's protected. He comes under the protection of the king. By the end of verse 11, uh, the, the king of, of Gerar says, nobody can harm Isaac or Rebekah. And then we pick up here in the verse 12th verse. We'll read 12 and 13 together. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich. 
and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. So Isaac takes God's word, he stays, he plants crops, and the next thing you know, he's unbelievably wealthy. He, he reaps what, what the Bible says a hundredfold, a hundredfold. This is, by the way, the same year as the drought and the famine. He's in the middle of a famine and he reaps a hundredfold. That, that is like crazy good in, in agricultural terms. It's not just good, it isn't great. It's, if you were a neighboring farmer, you would say, what? You, would say, you, have a zero, you have an extra zero. That's the kind of good. It's amidst a famine. Same year as the famine. That year he plants crops and he reaps a hundredfold. The year of the famine, he has a crazy good, crazy good harvest. Crazy good. And it seems at this point that the story is going very well for Isaac. You imagine, the Lord says, stay and I'll bless you. And here, here you find he's protected in Gerar, and he's protected both inside and out. So by being in, in the town, he receives the kind of the protection of being among the people, right, from kind of the brigands and the wild worlds. He's protected from the wild world, but Abimelech the king has protected him from the inside as well. So he's well protected, he's well provided for, he's rich, it says. I mean, the Bible doesn't mince words here. It says, and he became rich. He's wealthy, You can imagine him thinking, this might be a great town to live in after all. I mean, if you can imagine Isaac and Rebecca lying in their tent one night and and him saying to his wife, I'm telling you, Rebecca, a hundredfold. It's a crazy good. You know? And that's when, you know, like she would kind of say something like, God's blessed us so much. You know those kind of like last things you say before you say goodnight? It's like, yeah, God's blessed us so much. I mean, that's, that's, that's the kind of environment that's going on here. It's just, it's, it's great. Okay, so let's read 14 through 16. The man, uh, starting in 14, he had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines, stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, move away from us. You've become too powerful for us. Things were a little too good, I guess. Things were going great. They were were almost going too great. I bet you Isaac's going, it would have been better had I had 30-fold. In a way, Isaac's wealth makes the Philistines around him feel poor. Isn't that how it happens? That our wealth is always a comparable idea, that we can feel comparatively impoverished when those around us are comparatively wealthy. So that's certainly going on. That's, that's probably the source of the filling up of Abraham's, uh, the wells that Abraham dug as they're trying to stunt or stifle or inhibit his wealth and growth. But it's more than simply envy that's going on, there's actually a feeling of being threatened. Abimelech says, you are becoming too powerful for us. you got to get out of here. Go. I mean, it's almost like, uh, like in It's a Wonderful Life, it's almost like Isaac, it might become Isaacville. You know, I mean, he's becoming so wealthy in the town that, that he's threatening even, even the ruling authorities, and he has to leave. 
And I can imagine that this must have been a confusing time in Isaac's spiritual life. So God allows the famine. You know, I can see him working through that, telling, telling his wife, look, God will take care of us. He allows the famine. Isaac goes to Gerar. He's on his way to Egypt, maybe, or he's certainly not going to think about not staying in Gerar. The Lord says, stay in Gerar and I'll bless you. Stay here. Make a home here. I'll bless you. I'll bless you. You stay. So he stays. He stays. He obeys the Lord. And now he's stuck here between God's command to stay or God's promise that, hey, if you stay for a while, it says, stay for a while. If you stay, now that command or that promise is countermanded by the king saying, go. That sounds like it would be confusing. I'm I mean, we, we want the Lord to speak to us, right? We want the Lord to speak to us. I'm just, I'm just saying, I'm just throwing out here this morning that I don't know if it gets that much easier. Like, you want the Lord to be, give you clarity, stay. Well, the Lord's going to say stay. Well, what happens when now you are kind of, there's an onslaught of difficulty? How do you begin to make this decision? I, I, all I'm saying is, is we sometimes hope, wouldn't the world be so much easier if God simply said, stay here, go here, do this and do that. And I'm saying, unless the Lord does that with everything, unless the hand goes in the puppet and does the whole thing, it's going to be equally confusing. I mean, here's, here's Isaac. He goes, God told me to stay. But the king is commanding that I leave. I'm just saying it's confusing. And here's what happens. So he, he, the, he leaves. He does leave. Let's read in 17. So Isaac moves away from there and encamps in the valley of Gerar. And he settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, which means discontent or dispute. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna, which means, by the way, opposition, something like that. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying... Now the Lord has given us room, and we will flourish in the land. Rehoboth means like open space. So there's this situation that's, that, that's happening, is that Isaac's, it, this is how I, I envision it. I, I'm not exactly clear how, how all of this works, but it appears as though the king says leave. Isaac and Sarah, Rebecca move out of the village you know, they leave their farm. Remember, they planted crops. It's like they migrate from the farm, but they don't migrate from the basic region of Gerar. They stay in the valley of Gerar. It's a big wadi there. And, and, and they, they, they kind of say, well, we'll just go and dig up the wells, and we'll, we'll live out here. They, they adopt, uh, adopt more of a herdsman uh, lifestyle is maybe the way you might think of it. But that doesn't seem good enough to, to the Philistines. The Philistines are not saying leave the town they're saying, no, you need to leave. You need to leave. You cannot be around us. There's this situation where, you know, Isaac digs his own well. 
And the moment there's water, the Philistines show up and go, this is our water. It's on our land. Almost like saying, Isaac, read my lips. Leave. We don't want you here. And so he says, okay, we'll go build another one? No, you don't understand. Leave. Go away. And actually the text says, and he moved on and dug Rehoboth. So it's almost the sense, the sense of which the Philistines, as long as he's in the Philistine area, there's this sense of you're still here, you're still threatening us, we still feel impoverished because of you. They have this envy and, and, and all of these things going on. They just want him to get away. And there's, there's injustice in that. I mean, certainly it's unjust that Isaac would, they'd wait for Isaac to dig the well and then say, oh, that's ours. Right. I mean, so it's full of injustice. It's full of, of abuse and uh, unjust deserts. That's going on. And what, what I do think is the most notable thing to recognize here, and it, to me it's, it's subtle but it's there, is that Isaac doesn't seem to fight back. There's not, in the, in the, in the story here, there's not a spirit that Isaac is fighting back. And I don't know exactly why that is. Maybe Isaac can't fight back. I mean, maybe, maybe Abimelech and Abimelech's army would crush him. I don't, I don't know all the reasons, but I'll say this. There doesn't seem to be a big spirit of like frustrated angst in Isaac. For example, if, if Abimelech had said go, and if Isaac had you know, objected to, uh, to Abimelech's face, you might expect that to be in the text. Abimelech said, leave, you're too powerful for us, but Isaac said, Dot, dot, dot. That doesn't happen. There's nothing there. And then even at these individual wells, the, the well of contention and the well of opposition, the, the opposition and the contention is not from Isaac. What does it say? It says the herdsmen were quarreling. I mean, you, I get this distinct impression that it kind of plays out like this. The herdsmen come back, you know, after, after you know, a few days of being out, and they say to Isaac, Isaac, that well we dug? The Philistines showed up, and, and they're saying it's theirs, and we told them we dug it. We showed them our shovels. I mean, Isaac, we dug that thing. Dude, we dug that thing. <sighs> I don't want to do any more of these. We dug out all your dads. We're tired of digging. And I get the impression that Isaac's like, you know, look, relax. We'll go dig another one. And they dig another one, and it's like, you know, they showed up again, and it says the herdsmen are quarreling, and, and, and Isaac says, relax. And you even see this, when he gets to Rehoboth, when, he, when they dig Rehoboth, Isaac's response is not like, finally, God has like given us, it's, it's God has given us this land. It, it, there's such a peace. It, there's a beautiful peace in that verse of, it makes you want to have a town in your state called Rehoboth. It's just, it has a piece about it. It even rolls Rehoboth. It, it gives you open space. And I do think it's worth, it's worth remarking on the way that Isaac moves on. The way that he doesn't fight for these things, but the way he kind of lets them go. The uh, best way I could think about it is his spirit seems to have a nomadic nature about it. Like, his spirit is not latching on to these things as though these things are the source of his security, but rather his spirit is willing to roam like he's a stranger in a strange land. He will roam because God will provide. 
He doesn't murmur. He doesn't whine. He's not grumbling. There's no complaining to God. And we know the Bible is not short on letting us know if his people complain. If Isaac was complaining, you could expect to know because they tell us everywhere else. He just moves on. And I, I, I call this faith. This is Isaac's one chapter in the Bible. And I would say he's a man of faith. In fact, I would say this. He trusts in God's care rather than in the visible material objects around him for care. In other words, he trusts in the God who's going to give, not in, the, not in the thing that he thinks God gave. Now, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna camp out here for a little, a little bit. It's easy for us to understand how the world would do this. The non-believing world, they look to things, they look to wells for trust and safety and security. That's, that's, what, that's what they do. That's what we do in our own ways and fashions, right? That's what we're trying not to do. But we certainly identify with it because we're participants in this idea of seeing things in life that are there and they're tangible and they're material and we can see them and we connect meaning and security to them because we can see them. I have a job. That job gives me security, right? That is, that's idolatry. He or she gives me security. I feel loved and appreciated when he or she is here. That is idolatry when, when dealt with to excess. I mean, these things all in their own excesses. But we have this, this tendency, the world certainly does, of saying, here's the object, I'm going to invest my trust in it, and it's going to provide for me. And when that's the case, when that's your worldview, when someone comes to the well and says, it's ours, you're going to say, no, it's not. Right? I mean, the telltale, this is, the sign of addiction is, what happens to your hand when someone tries to take it from you? When do your knuckles go white? I mean, so idolatry is kind of a white-knuckled life of saying this thing, this material idea, that person, this job, this career, my talent, my health, whatever it is, that that is what's giving us security. And we, and we know we talk about that a lot. But here's where I want to, I want to, I want to alter it a little bit. That's how the world behaves, and we're coming out of that. So we certainly behave that way at times. But there's a Christian, there's a Christian way of messing this up also. There's a Christian way of seeing the well which we trust that God gave. So we're not trusting in the well. God gave the well. But what we do is we say that the well, because we want to be material. We're still, we're coming out of the flesh. So we want to be material. So what we say is, is this material reality, this well is the manifestation of God's love and promise for me. That's what we do. See, it's, it's inside the canopy of the Christian faith. We're not saying the well is God. We're saying, God, praise the Lord, he gave us the well. Praise the Lord, he gave me this job. Praise the Lord, he's placed me here. Praise the Lord, he's brought that person in my life. Praise the Lord. We say these things, but what we do is we say, we assume and equate God's love for us with this material object. I understand that God loves me because he's given me, he's placed me by this well. I understand that God cares for me because he's put me in this position. God loves me because he's done this thing for me. It's just as materialistic in its nature. What it's doing is it's taking an invisible God who has an invisible promise, which is so much bigger than a well. 
And it's dumbing it down because we, we feel like we need to see his promise and love for us in, with our own two eyes. And when this is the case, when someone tries to take it from us, we either fight for it because God gave it to us. Or we go into a crisis about whether or not God hears us or sees us or loves us because we've lost it. And I thought God loved me because he gave that to me. So uh, this morning I just want to take, what is the promise of God? For us. What is God's promise for us? Is it that he'll provide for you in this life something that you can see and touch? I would say this, this is the promise. I would say that upon death or his return, whichever comes first, those who worship the Lord will be brought to him in perfection. That's the promise. The promise of God is that to all those people who bow a knee with steadfast faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Because we have amounted in our ledger a debt of sin that is too big for us to ever pay back. That we cannot, and with, through our own works, uh, make amends to the Lord for the things that we've done wrong. That we are doomed because of the debt of sin that we have before a holy God. That Jesus Christ came and he died on the cross and he was raised to new life and he's bearing the burden and debt of sin on his shoulders on our behalf and the promise is is that if you kneel to that to him that upon your death or his return whichever comes first he will bring you into glory can you touch that is it going to show up in this life Sometimes we diminish the love of God so much by saying he loves me because of this. He doesn't love you because of this. Maybe he's given it to you for a season. Maybe he's given it to you for a purpose. Maybe he hasn't given it to you. Maybe you've taken it and you're saying God gave it to you. The point is, the love of God cannot be condensed into a visible, physical object that we can put our hands around and say, this is why God loves me. God loves you in, so, in, in a magnificent way that is beyond Touching and seeing, it's invisible, it's beyond us, it's immaterial, it is a spiritual reality that is in front of us, not around us. And if that's your attitude, when someone takes the well from you, you just leave. We don't have to fight over these things. We preach, we testify of a very small God when we fight over his small love. Rather than going, you know, you're fighting over that water. I know someone who will give a wellspring of life-giving water that will never end and that will quench every need I have. I'm going to follow him. But they're squabbling over a hole in the ground. And Jesus says, wouldn't you like water that would make you never thirst again? And she says, where is that? How can I get that? And he says, that is above you. It's not here. It's here. And that's what Isaac does. Isaac moves on. In fact, he moves on again. 
And, and, and this moving on, this willingness to move, and the, this is true as the, in the individual, it's true as the family, it is so true as the church. I think we have ruined at times our testimony by fighting over little wells. This is an institutional well that the church once had, and someone buried it, and we dug it back up, and you're trying to take it back from us, and I think I would say, move on. Move on. Anywhere you put your shovel, I'll give you water. If you would just dig. But we sit here and we tell old war stories about our father's wells. Just move on. And so Isaac does, and this is what happened. From there, this is verse 23, from there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you. I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked him, Why have you come to me? since you were hostile to me and sent me away. They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. And so we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, that way you, that, that you will not do us harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. It's funny how he says that. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we have found water. He called it Sheba, which means oath. And today, and to this day, the name of the town is Beersheba, which means the well of oath. And I'm going to read 34 two weeks from now. We'll get there later. But you see this, so, so this is what happens. First of all, the Lord speaks again. And here's kind of the other side of this bookend. It's, if it's not enough that the Lord speaks to him once in his life, on the other side of the Valley of Gerar, the Lord shows up again, and he says, and he says all the same kinds of promises. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to do all of this good for you. He says that to Isaac, and then he affirms and confirms his oath with the same kinds of blessings. In Gerar, he said, I'll bless you. And what does he do? He, he gives, places them under protection, and he gives them a hundredfold crazy good crop. Over here in Beersheba, what does he say? He says, I'm going to protect you and bless you. And what does he do? Next day, Abimelech shows up and wants to make an oath of treaty and alliance so that he places again under the protection, and he gives them, they have a breakthrough well that happens the very next day. There's the same kind of confirming oaths and confirming evidences that God is speaking. And, And I'll say, this is where I think Real, regular Christians go, why doesn't God do that for me? Like, there are, good, you, you, there are good Christians here. You are good Christians. Who probably at times in your life say to the Lord, Lord, I want to go where you want me to go. Like, I'm not asking for more money. I just want you to tell me what to do. 
Like, I will obey you if you speak. I don't think I'm alone in this. So why does, it, why does God do it for Isaac and not for us? Well, the first answer is I don't know why. The Lord's allowed to speak to who he wants to speak to, and we need to honor that. Isaac is a more important part of the story than maybe you and I are. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fairly important part of the genesis of the story of redemption. But there are some things that I do think can, can help us understand or hear God speak or understand what God is saying to us all the time with a greater degree of clarity, and it's this. Oftentimes, when we want the Lord to speak, we want the Lord to speak in a way that our material eyes and hands and ears will appreciate it. We're still getting back to, Lord, what well do you want me to be at? It's so easy. This is so hard. This nuance of living in faith is so hard, of actually saying, I am unconcerned what job I have. That's what we're praying for. We, we, we think we're praying holy prayers. They're not terrible prayers, but what I'm saying is, is be careful when you pray for these things that you're not saying, God, I, that my will, my role in the kingdom, all my whole purpose in life is not being met unless you give me this physical, visible, material manifestation of your love and your promise for me. Isaac's not doing that here. But So oftentimes when we pray to the Lord, Lord, I'll do what you want as long as you just tell me what you want. What we're saying is this, Lord, I really need to see something right now with my physical eyes or my hands. I need a phone call. I need some physical thing to, to encourage me that you do in fact love me. And that you do in fact care for me. When I think the Lord would say this, the Lord would say a higher way, a better way. This is just, if you want to do it well. That our, our perspective would be in the world that we cannot see and touch. That our attitude would be one that would say, Lord, I want to be part of the kingdom. Like, what is the story here? Why is God, why is God blessing Isaac all like this? Is the purpose of God speaking in Isaac's life to bless him? If it is, why the famine? If God was just going to bless Isaac, why the famine? And if the famine, say there's a backhanded reason for the famine, then why does God give him a hundred crazy good fold of food that gets him booted out of Gerar? If the whole goal was to bless him, why not give him like 85 fold and allow him to live there in wealth? Wouldn't that be, isn't that the idea of blessing? If the objective of God was to tell a blessed story through Isaac, if that is God's objective to do that, then he seems to have gone about it the wrong way. I would, I would say I would beg to differ. It seems to me that the story God's telling is that Isaac is carrying a promise. And God is in the business of caring, protecting, and advancing his promise. That's what God's concerned about. God is concerned first and foremost with the promise, which we call Jesus. When Jesus showed up, he rephrased it. He said, you say promise. He begins to speak in this phrase. He says, I say kingdom of God. In other words, God's purpose in telling the stories with you, with Isaac and with me, is that we would carry 
the kingdom of God forward in this life. And when that's our prayer, I believe he speaks clearly. I believe he speaks clearly in multiple ways. When we pray to the Lord for things, it's very hard to understand the clarity of this in Scripture. You can read this Bible all day trying to figure out what car to buy. And it could be a great question. You could have an honest question about what car to buy. You could say, I want to... And I would, and so I'm not saying the Lord's condemning these things. I'm saying you're the, clear, the clear voice of God comes out the more wholly directed we are towards him. So the more material our, our questions are, the, 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 the murkier the clarity of God gets. But I say, if you are solely sold out for the kingdom of God, I believe, one, I believe the scriptures become very clear. And two, I believe the Spirit speaks. And I'll say this. This is from experience, but I think, it, I think the story of the church has a voice here. That in my life, the few, the few times that God has spoken to me in my own way, right? The self-convictional way that I say, I, I heard God speak to me. They only dealt with his kingdom. It had to do with drawing me deeper into God's advancement of his kingdom. He's not speaking to me about my job. He's not speaking to me about... He's speaking to me about my role in the promise. I think, I think in, in your lives, if you think back to those of you who felt like you've heard the Lord speak, very often, and the Lord has freedom, right? Sometimes he can speak whatever way he wants, but I'm saying by and large, the clarity of the Lord's voice comes when we are directed heavenward and not towards the things of this world. I believe this was Isaac. I believe Isaac was focused and had faith that God would protect him, that God would provide for him because, after all, he's carrying the promise. And I think that allows Isaac to let things go in this world in anticipation of the next.